Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 158. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 158 you're listening to, just in case, you know, as I've said in the past, in case you thought you were listening to another episode, like 155 or 100. This is, in fact, 158. So uh, welcome. Happy holidays to you. I am absolutely thrilled and honored to tell you that today's guest that you're about to listen to is the legendary, the one and only Mr. Eddie Kramer who's worked with, of course, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Joe Cocker, Derek and the Dominoes, The Beatles, Kiss, Peter Frampton, Mott the Hoople, Bad Company, Humble Pie, Anthrax, Brownsville Station. That's just kind of a, a rough glimpse of what he's worked on. Those are just some of the highlights. And I got to give a sincere thanks to our friend Clifton David Broadridge, who is a WCA listener, who is the one responsible for reaching out to me and who said in an email, something to the effect of, um, it was a guest suggestion. So one day I get this guest suggestion and it says, um, I work with Eddie in Toronto and have a studio together mixing and producing and uh, i'm his studio partner and assistant and was wondering if you would like to interview him for your podcast what the hell does one say to that of course i said yeah absolutely let's make it happen you know he told me he said just email him and so i emailed eddie and out of the blue one day i get this email from eddie kramer that says hey matt so sorry that I didn't get back to you sooner. I've been traveling and doing AES. And uh, anyhow, call me at your earliest convenience. Now, in our world of recording, I don't care who you are out there and how famous you are or the accolades you've received, but to get an email from Eddie Kramer that says, call me at your earliest convenience, that's pretty mind-blowing. So I called him. It was kind of funny because, first of all, he's a, he's a very funny guy. The, the conversation got off to a start there. And then I said, yeah, so, you know, I'm just uh, checking in with you. I wanted to uh, see if you are interested in being on my podcast. And then I felt like I got a little bit of a grilling, a little bit of a test. I don't know if he was teasing me or not, but anyhow, he said, who's been on your podcast? As if to say, should I be on there? Why, why are we talking? You know, I kind of, you know, got a little feeling in my stomach and I thought, okay, I better go for the big guns. So I immediately just popped out and I said, Al Schmidt has been on. And he goes, oh, I love Al Schmidt. And just proceeded to tell me some stories, some some fun stories about he and Al and uh, his respect for Al. And he said, okay, well, let's get our calendars out and let's let's figure this out. And that's when I knew we were, we were set. So um, there it is. There's the story. And uh, you're going to hear it all right here pretty soon. So Happy to say, Eddie Kramer coming up here on the Working Glass Audio podcast. 
If you've been listening to Working Class Audio for a while, maybe you get it through some type of aggregator, maybe like iTunes, and maybe you've never even been over to the website. So this is my ask. Head on over to workingclassaudio.com. Do a few things. Sign up on our email list. And if you wouldn't mind, go over to all of our social media outlets, of course, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and check us out. If you do listen on iTunes and you wouldn't mind, head on over there and uh, leave us a review, a positive review. Yeah, so do all that. Social media, iTunes, review. Stop by the website, workingclassaudio.com. Tell a friend. All right, so NAM is coming up. It's January 25th through the 28th. That's 2018. That's in Anaheim, of course, if you aren't familiar and uh, right right by Disneyland that's a uh, this is winter nam of course not summer nam like uh summer nam is in Nashville winter nam Anaheim yeah so anyways I will be there I'll be there every day of the of the conference but uh in particular on Friday I'm going to be hanging out with my uh my high school friend Colin McDowell McDSP of course we're going to be at booth 14904 hanging out Friday at 3 p.m. for an hour sit down to be honest with you, not really exactly sure what we're going to talk about. We might talk about the podcast. We might talk about some stuff I'm mixing. We might talk about our old high school days. I don't know what we're going to talk about, really. But uh, it's going to be good to hang out with Colin. Great guy, super smart, and uh, great bunch of guys over there in McDSP. Yeah, be sure and stop by. 14904, 3 p.m. Friday, I will be there. And if you don't know where that is, you can obviously go on over to uh, just Google NAM. And if you type in McDSB, you can find out exactly where that is, where 14904 is, yeah. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. I think it's time to get down to it. So let's let's jump right in. Eddie Kramer here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Right. Fire when ready. Eddie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How's San Francisco? You know, it's good. It's been a little chilly lately. Can't be as chilly as here, mate. Oh yeah. Well, you're getting you're getting a little snow there, and you're in Toronto. Si, señor. I'm in Toronto. I've been to Toronto. It is very cold there. But the, the interesting thing is, since I moved here with my wife last year, you know, we've been through one winter, and actually, I was here even earlier uh, with my friend Clifton David Broadbridge who is actually the guy who uh, I produced records for and actually got me to come here to Toronto. So I've been coming here for quite a while. Some of the winters earlier in the last two or three years have been quite cold. Last year, not so much, you know? Anybody who says that global warming is not happening is an idiot. Well, and I see on your website that you sell a very fashionable set of scarves, so that probably is good to have, a nice Eddie Kramer scarf. Thank you. Yeah, we we like those things. My wife and I, AJ and I, she's the designer. She's the manufacturer of it. She's very clever with that. They're they're imported silk from Italy and... um, Some of them are plain velvet, some of them are not. I'll gush for a minute and then I'll get over it. I knew that you've you've had a hand in a lot of very very important recordings in, in music history. From my world, as a, as a kid, my older brothers passed down a record to me by Kiss called Rock and Roll Over. Never heard of it. Never heard of it, yep. <laughs> and that, you know, that record was very important to me growing up. And later on, of course, uh, the Zeppelin recordings, the Jimi Hendrix recordings, uh, you played a role in some sonic gems, I'll say. Just speaking of, of Zeppelin, Immigrant Song, Song Remains the Same, Kashmir. Those are very very powerful songs in themselves and the recordings of them, uh, they have a sonic imprint all their own. And to realize that you've had a hand in that is, it's pretty mind blowing to think about. I wanna ask you about something completely different because it's, it is a part of who you are. I want you to tell me about photography for a second and oh, why, sure. why you enjoy it. I got my first camera in late 66, maybe early 67. Uh, There was an engineer at Olympic Studios who had a spare camera, and I said, do you want to sell it? And he said, yeah. I said, how much did you want for it? And he said, 10 quid. Right, I'm in. What I loved about Olympic was the continuous parade of really interesting folks who would come into the studio on a daily basis, session musicians, people delivering stuff. And then when I walked outside the studio, there was London life. And I used to take my camera down to the market, the, the, the food markets, and just take pictures of people. 
I loved taking pictures of people. And then when I went to Paris with a girlfriend of mine. I just loved being able to capture that scene and started practicing a bit in the studio, taking pictures in the control room with very, very low lighting, of course. Never going to use a flash, I was determined. I thought that was very disturbing. And the musicians who were hanging out in the studio, whether it was Hendrix or The Stones or anybody who would be on a session with me, I'd just have the camera sitting right next to me on the console, fully loaded, ready to rock. I would just wheel around in my chair, go click, 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 and then put the camera back and keep working. Sometimes I'd have the camera in my hand with the right hand, <laughs> mixing with the left, and I'd just and then keep working. It was fun for me, and nobody gave a shit that I was taking pictures. It wasn't like, oh, you know, you can't take pictures of my artist, I'm going to beat you up and all of that. It was nothing like that. And then I bought a second camera, and then I really got into color, which I took quite a few of Jimmy. He was the main guy I was taking pictures of. But virtually every artist I was, it was, oh, Kramer with his camera, doesn't matter, fine. And here you are documenting in two different formats these very important musicians. And what I'm curious about, and, and this is kind of a, a businessy type question and kind of a, a, a legal type question, because I, I have recently discovered Taking pictures is a very enjoyable thing and have a, a Nikon DSLR and have bought some lenses and have gone down that path. That's a very nice camera. I enjoy it quite a bit. One thing that I see is that there's a picture of Robert Plant and, and uh, Jimmy Page on your website that you sell. Does Robert ever call you up and say, Eddie, what are you doing selling my picture? Nope. And there, there's a very interesting uh, analysis from the legal side of things. We print photographs and sell them in galleries around the world. As long as it's a limited edition, which it is, it's considered art. And artwork is not under that same horrible commercial sort of thing. If I took an image of Hendrix or the Stones or Zeppelin or anybody uh, and put it on a t-shirt and made a commercial venture out of it, that's a different story. Now you uh, have to okay. make a deal with them and they get a percentage. But as far as prints, no. Okay, that makes total sense. So do you continue to take photos? Sadly, I've been using the stupid cell phone, which I do like before convenience, but it's not the same. My cameras are in for repair. I decided to start it up again because there's something very cool about analog photography, as is analog sound. I love them both. I love both the feeling you get when you hear something coming off tape and look at a, a print that has been done on, say, um, an ASA 400 black and white print that's maybe pushed a little bit and you see the grain and it's very real. It, it has a different context. It's like, it's tangible. The digital stuff is great and don't get me wrong, I, I have a digital camera as well, but it's not as much fun. With an analog camera, just a regular 35 millimeter camera, you really have to take your time, compose your shot. Don't fire off a thousand bloody shots and maybe hope to get one. In those days when I only had 35 prints or 36 prints that would come off a roll, I would be very careful what I did. I wouldn't waste film. You know, you would study the subject and figure out, oh, hmm, yeah, I can get that shot, bang, and you get the shot. And then that's the one that you love. 
because it's been composed and thought about. That's very interesting. And, and the comparison of, of traditional film cameras as compared to analog tape, I love that that comparison, the instant character that comes with it, whereas digital needs a little help to get its character. Let's go there for a minute, because the care and the feeling that you get when you're in the studio and you have 24-track or 16-track tape the bloody tape is expensive. The band can hardly afford it. So now you're going to be damn careful to make sure that what you capture is really the one, you know. And I always make sure that the bands are extremely well rehearsed. When they come in the studio, they've got to know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? We can record to tape, which I still do. You hit record, you get the master in two or three takes, hopefully, and then you dump from the tape to Pro Tools using the Burl... A to D converters, which is what I love to use. And that sounds just like the tape. And then I can continue working in the Pro Tools world. But for me, it's the satisfaction of listening back to the drums, the guitars, the bass, vocals, anything that's come off tape. It's got this wonderful warmth. Same thing with photography. It's, it's the same deal. You know, you get that warmth coming off the print. And then, you know, you print it in a lab with, with, with chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's it's the same vibe, isn't it? Chemical dependency, yes. I'm not going there, mate. <laughs> You've been recording, to the best of my knowledge, since 1962, roughly? First of all, let me go back a little bit to sort of get the history part of it set. I arrived in England in um, 1960, the tail end of 1960, from South Africa, and proceeded to sort of figure out what I was going to do I was this young kid, 18, 19 years old. I'd studied classical music as a kid and got into jazz, which then got me into rock and roll a bit. So for the first year and a half, almost two years in London, I was a general dog's body. I was working for an advertising agency as a messenger boy. And then I worked for a fashion magazine as a messenger boy. But I got to know London. I used to take these freaking huge mail sacks around to the mail department, run messages all over London, got to know the subway system and all that, and just sort of integrated myself with the way London was at that time. Saw the Beatles on TV, all that kind of stuff. And I was figuring out, I was at this advertising agency, being one of those internal messenger boys. On the second floor, there was the TV production house, and it had a control room with projectors facing both ways. So on hmm. one side, there was a, a room where the clients would come in from the ad agency and they would watch the commercials, the rushes in the morning. And then on the other side would be another, they would have another client looking. And it was a busy place, this projection room, and it had amplifiers and stuff. And I loved amps. I loved electricity. I loved anything to do with audio because I was always experimenting at home with my own little tape machine. So the guys there kind of used to see me hanging out and the, one of the chaps said, Oi, do you want to help me wire up uh, a hi-fi system? I said, yeah, love to. So on the side, one of these engineers, he was getting hold of these beautiful old antique cabinets and ripping them apart and putting amplifiers inside and putting a turntable on the top. When you close the cabinet up, it would be elegant sort of British <laughs> loveliness, you know, and then... He would open it up and put his little needle on the record and stuff. But it was very interesting for me because it gave me a little bit of an in into the audio world. 
at the end of that year, I think late 61, early 62, I was so pissed off at being a messenger boy. I grabbed the television yearbook, which was this bloody great big reference book, and I opened it up to recording studio. I said, that's it. That's what I want to do. It combines audio, recording, and music. So I closed my eyes and with a pen, I just went dum, 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 dum. I hit about six spots on the two pages where it said recording studios. And I wrote six letters off. Two of them came back. One was AdVision. And that's where I landed a job as, once again, a dog's body. <laughs> but in those <laughs> days, they didn't call you dog's body. They called you uh, a tea boy. So yes. I was a tea boy. Hello, mate. You, you want some more tea? And you drag this big, freaking huge tray of tea with milk and sugar. And you cleaned the toilets, you ran messages, but you learned by sitting in the control room and watching what was going on. And that was my first gig, I think early 62. So learning mono, how did you record mono? Just, you know, one track. <laughs> it's a trick. <laughs> you you got to get that damn balance right, you know. Well, and, so, and what's interesting about your career, I in fact, I, I think... You and Al Schmidt might be the only two that, that have this experience that have been on my show. And you've pretty much seen most of the developments in recording technology come and go over the years. And with that kind of knowledge and experience with all those different formats that have come and gone, I'm wondering if there's an overarching view that you could share about those formats and, and recording technology in general. You know, I, thoughts or philosophies that you carry in your head after seeing it all come and go. Well, what was interesting for me in the beginning was that foundation, and I carry that through to today. And I do wish that the classes that are given out in the audio world for people who are coming up through the ranks, and there are hundreds and thousands of them, it's like they're on a, they're on a conveyor belt, you know. You have your credit card, oh, you want to be an engineer, well, come to this school or that school. And this applies across the board to the best of them all, to the lowest of them all, that when you're a kid who wants to get into the audio world, you present the credit card, you've got 14 months or a year or two, whatever it is, you crank the handle and here comes an engineer out the other side. <laughs> and there's very little attention paid to the art of recording. How do you capture a performance? I would insist, if it were my school, I would insist A, that Everybody learns how to cut tape and how to record mono. So you record it on a mono tape machine and you, you have to edit this performance from four minutes down to three. And that gives you an insight as to what it takes to combine a bunch of microphones together, get the signal in, and carefully balance that so that it sounds great. I mean, I always check my mixes in mono, stereo, and then now 5.1, of course, and 7.1, and now Dolby Atmos and all the rest of that. But you got to start somewhere. Yeah. And, and if you have that foundation, it gives you a leg up. So from there, I went to Pi Studios. And there, it was a huge jump from, uh, from AdVision to Pi. Pi was like the new, cool, hip studio in London at the time. This was 63. And... Three track, three track, whoa, three track half inch Ampex with a cell sync, which is with a switcher. You could you know, record the band on, say, one and two, and then you'd flip the switch, and then you, within, so that's in cell sync, meaning you're still in sync, and you record on the third track, and then you have to flip it back. And that's how you recorded. We would record at Pi 
30, 40, 50 piece orchestras in the studio with the artists in, on track, on the middle track, and pretty much like Al Schmidt did, stereo information on the left to right and the artists in the middle, and that's it. Get it right. <laughs> wow. There's another quick story about Pi. Pi was so freaking awesome. Pi Studios was run by a guy named Bob Auger. Now, Bob Auger was probably the greatest English recording engineer of all time, in my opinion. On any given day, he would say to me, oh, Eddie, come on, we've got a gig. And we take the Pi Mobile, which became quite well known. It was a three-track Ampex tape machine, three Ampex speakers, three U47s, put it all in his car, go to Walthamstow Town Hall, set up the mics 30 feet up in the air, left, center, right, the center one right behind the conductor. Get The orchestra gets the balance with the conductor, we go into a little room off the side, put up the speakers, put up the machine, do a test. Okay, ready to roll. And then we record a 90-piece symphony orchestra, just like that. That would be it. The occasional filler mic, you know, with a, maybe a little, uh, would be one of those um, tube Vortexian mixes. You, you were talking about this gentleman who you said was probably one of the greatest engineers in London or in, in, in England. Yeah. I want to ask you about this, uh, and correct me if you if you think I'm wrong, but George Martin seemed to start the trend of producer as celebrity. I may be wrong or right about that. I'm not sure. But I'm curious, when did that start happening with engineers, where engineers started to become rock stars in their own right? Well, I guess that probably started in the... Oof. I would say middle 60s, about 66, 67. Glenn Johns probably was the first of the uh, mm. guys who said, oh, I'm an independent engineer, you pay me separately. You know, I know he worked for studios in the beginning, you know, getting his career going, but he was probably one of the first guys to set the tone of, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a very good engineer, I know what I'm doing, and I'm worth X. Hmm. And by the way, there's... In my mind, there was always this thing in England, you know, you get to be an independent engineer and people would look down at you like, ooh, you flash bastard. You're making <laughs> 60 quid a week. Oh, I hate you. The British were very funny about that. They, they were not celebrating the, the fact that you were good at what you do and you were worth X number of pounds per day or whatever. Coming to America, big change. That was a big change, but that's a later part of the story. We're still stuck in England right now. Well, actually, I'd like to go back a little bit. There's something in your story that is fairly interesting to me. You're from Cape Town, South Africa, and I read that uh, your parents left there for political reasons, and it said essentially they were, they were greatly against the, the apartheid that was happening. Mom left London in 1939. There were six kids. War was imminent. My grandmother said, to my mom, go to South Africa. I have a sister there. You can live with her until the war's over. And she immigrated and met my dad. And I was born in 42. Uh, so the desire to come to England was a great one. Uh, my dad really was fascinated with coming to the UK. And we all went on a boat, <laughs> a two-week trip. And the first trip was 1949. We were there for a year. Uh, lived in London, and it was just after the war. You can imagine, London looked pretty miserable at that point. Uh, we came back to South Africa in 1950, and we lived there till 1956. And then my dad and a bunch of his cohorts won the Rhodesian sweepstake. 
quite a big chunk of money for those days, which was about 5,000 pounds. And we all went back to England in 56 for another year. And that's where I went to school in England, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> being from South Africa and trying to sort of integrate into a, a school there in London. Uh, and then we came back to South Africa. And from 1957 through 1960, that's, of course, when apartheid really took hold. My dad, being a very liberal left-wing kind of guy, was very much against that. And he knew he also had to be very careful about raising his voice because you could be arrested, put under house arrest for speaking out against the government. You know, they were very tough on that. And my dad had a lot of uh, friends who were in the government, who were MPs, who were uh, speaking out against the government. And they had to leave. They had to get out of South Africa. So when the riots occurred in, in Johannesburg and in Cape Town, my dad said, that's it. We're out of here. We have to leave. And for me, that was an interesting time because I was a teenager, but I was also <laughs> getting into trouble with the jazz stuff. My dad was so pissed. He would say in the South African accent, listen, Edwin, you can't go smoking all that dacha in those clubs. Dacha being the Afrikaans word for grass, you know. And he was really worried about me because I loved the jazz scene. Now, Cape Town was very interesting. It was the, the most liberal of all of the South African cities. And the blacks and whites actually kind of got on together, and certainly in the jazz clubs, white and black mixed. So that was the beginning of that thing. But we left in 60. So my mom, being a Cockney born and bred, born within the sound of Bow Bells, which is the church of Bow in Stepney, you're designated a Cockney. She was tough, man. She, she had a wicked sense of humor. And by the way, she just passed away last year. She was almost 101. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, she was, she was the salt of the earth and had this wonderful presence about her and people just loved her she was she was quite special it was the sense of humor though that really i think that sort of imparted itself to me i would call her up you know this was in her last years or so hello mum. how are you feeling and without missing a beat she would say with both hands son with both hands <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's the kind of stuff that lovely very sharp witty stuff <laughs> I was in a band, that, the name of the band was Seven Day Diary, and we titled the record after a Cockney slang called uh, Skin and Blister. Oh, yeah. Sister. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was, it was two, two women fronting the band, and, and yeah. I was like, why are we calling the record Skin and Blister? And they were like, because it's Cockney. It means sister. I was like, oh, okay. Right. Apples and pears, stairs, trouble and strife, <laughs> wife. <laughs> Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Tell me about meeting Jimi Hendrix. Who? In, yeah. The, who, who's this guy, <laughs> Jimmy? everybody's talking about? <laughs> I don't know about this guy. I think he could be big. Meeting Jimi Hendrix. And then what's interesting is, you know, artists work with producers and engineers, and it's not often that they seem to, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but Jimmy stayed with you. He continued to work with you. What was it about the relationship between you and Jimmy? Was there a, a major amount of trust that he had in you? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Thank you for, for asking that. I was very fortunate. I was at Olympic Studios uh, in, you know, I joined there in late 66. And we were in an older studio, an older version of uh, Olympic. I don't know if you know, but Olympic was on a little... Um, side street in London before it moved to Barnes. Barnes is a suburb of uh, London across the river, across the Thames River. Uh, that was where the new studio was. But the old one, the old Olympic was phenomenal. That had a great history. It was haunted, uh, very much haunted. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember Dick Swetnam, who was the guy who built the Helios consoles, come screaming out of the basement Ah, the chains, the ghost, ah. He would be freak, totally freaked out. Anyway, many, many, many stories about Olympic, uh, the old one. That's where the Trogs did their famous tape. You've heard of the Trogs tape. That's where that was. And that's Keith Grant, who is my boss, who was a senior engineer. And he was trained by Bob Auger, as were many engineers, to go back to that thing. There's a long history of uh, engineering hierarchy. And most of the senior engineers that I knew were either trained by Bob or influenced by Bob Auger or, or the, some of the engineers at EMI, Abbey Road. Anyway, so I joined there in the late fall and then the news was, wow, we're going to be moving to a brand new facility across the river. And Keith took me down to show me the place and it was I was blown away. It was huge. And then Dick Swetnam, the, the guy who was the senior tech guy who was building the console, said, all right, Eddie, Today, we're going to cut all the wires in the back of this old tube board, and you're going to cut right through us because we're moving. And so I got these big bolt cutters and was <laughs> helping him cut through the... That was quite something. Wow. We, mo we moved there in uh, late 66. The studio was up and running. Very, very successful initially. Now, during that time, of course, Jimmy's just starting his career. We were all looking in the New Musical Express or any of the rags. <laughs> And Jimi Hendrix is going up the charts with Hey Joe and all of that. We, everybody thought, man, this guy is amazing. And wouldn't you know, January of 67, we get the phone call. 
Uh, Chess Chanda had heard about Chess being Jimmy's manager and producer, had heard about Olympic. He and Jimmy were very unhappy with the studios that they were using at the time. They had recorded, I think, three or four songs, which was Hey Joe and Wink Cries Mary and a couple other things. But they wanted to come to a new studio that wouldn't restrict them because where they were recording was in the basement and a bank was above them. They couldn't make a lot of noise. And you can imagine that. The first time I see Jimmy was when the roadie for Jimmy was walking through the double doors at Olympic, carrying a Marshall stack on his back and an amplifier in the other hand. He says, Oi, where do you want this lot? And I said, Oh, over there, because he's a big bugger. I didn't want to offend him. And then Jimmy came in. He was very shy. He was wearing this very grubby white raincoat and sat down in the corner while all the gear was being set up. Yeah, he just sat there and just sort of waited wait for it. And then he, as soon as he saw the gear was plugged in, he said, all right, took off his coat, opened his guitar case, plugged in, and then, holy shit, I never heard anything quite like it. As you can imagine, it was a bit shocking. <laughs> I mean, how the fuck am I going to record this lot? So that started the sort of repartee between Jimmy and I, and it was it was lovely because I would record a little bit for him and he would come in and look and go, ooh, okay, right, let me go back out and see what I can do. And then he tweaked the amp, tweaked the pedals, and then something different would come out. It was just blow my mind again. I'm, I'm frantically tweaking and twiddling knobs in the control room. By the way, I'm, on my card, I my description of my job is knob twiddler true sense of the word knob yes absolutely <laughs> anyway so i would do that and then you'd come back in again and we we would do this thing where you know he would try to top what i was doing and i would try to top <laughs> what he was doing so there was this lovely friendly rivalry we got on really well i understood him i think i respected him tremendously i was in awe of him who wouldn't be but you couldn't let that show you know, it was just Jimmy. All right, come on, let's get this done. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay, man. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was, an, it was a really lovely relationship. And and uh, obviously, I miss him terribly. Who wouldn't, you know, work with a guy like that, who's probably the world's greatest <laughs> guitar player, or certainly the guitar player who everybody who's a guitar player wants to take a piece of and figure out how they can play like him, but it's impossible. What are some of the philosophical things that you learned from him? Any life lessons that you to this day think, Jimmy would think what I'm doing is great or would not agree with this or? I think Jimmy was a person who thought very deeply, was misunderstood to a large degree, I think. He had very advanced ideas. I think he believed very strongly in equality for everybody, women who he felt were not respected. He certainly was politically, I wouldn't say active, but certainly aware and certainly expressed those feelings through his songs. But this whole idea of electric church, which we never really got the concept. I, it was difficult to get the concept in the beginning but then gradually you realize, wait, he's on another level. He's on another plane, as well as his music was on another plane, <laughs> on another level. But as an individual, he was incredibly shy, had a wicked, wicked sense of humor. Certainly would take the piss out of me and Mitch and Noel and then 
take the piss out of himself. Self-deprecating humor. It was great. It was a lot of fun to be with. Very serious, but also very funny. I mean, it shows up when you hear the new record, by the way, which is coming out in January, February next year. It's a record I've been working on for about for about a year. Uh, myself, John McDermott, and Janie Hendricks. You know, as you know, we do all the records, and it's the last of the studio albums. It's the last of the trilogy. People, Hell and Angels, Valley of Neptune, all that sort of stuff. So this is the last of it. And it's some pretty amazing stuff. You, there's uh, a track with Johnny Winter. There's a, two tracks with Stephen Stills. And out of the 13 songs, only 10, 10 of, out of the 13 haven't been released before. So a this, nice surprise for the fans. Has it been greatly manipulated or? You can't screw around with history. Right. Uh, what I do is a different thing. What I try to do is to be like, you know those guys when they're out in Egypt or in the desert and they come across this ancient tomb and they're very careful with their little brushes and they brush away all the dirt to see what's on it. That's what I do. Okay. Uh, that's what I liken it to. I use the best of analog and the best of digital and combine the two worlds into this system of trying to restore Jimmy's vocal, his guitars, his the drum sounds, everything. So it's, it's not clean to the point of pristine sort of studio stuff. No, 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 no. What we want to do is to get the very best out of Jimmy's vocal because the stuff that you're going to hear on this record is live in the studio, was done in, in answer to your question, was done 68 through 70. Mm. Um, and it's remarkable. They're fantastic performances. They're so full of energy. And what I wanted to try to do is to bring Jimmy's voice up in the mix so it doesn't feel like it's overpowering, but that the band is exactly up there with him. And, you know, with all the plugins and all the stuff, that, I mean, I use plugins, I use all the analog stuff. And it's remarkable now what I can do, which I couldn't do 15, 10, 12 years ago, you know, the, the, the state of digital flexibility, I would say, you know, with all the plugins, I can go in and finely tune to a half dB, a quarter of a dB, uh, I can shape the, the noise in the background. So I'm not destroying what's there, but rather enhancing what's there mm -hmm. and making it sound fresh. And I think when you hear it, hopefully you'll agree. I'm curious how the uh, the music and recording world that we have today compares to any other time in the past. Are we truly at a unique time, or does this remind you of any other time in the past? Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. I wish I could say it was unique. I find a lot of what's being released formulaic, as if so you push a button here and you push a button there, and whoa, look, we got this track that just suddenly came together, and it's all samples and all of that, and it's mastered and mixed in almost identically the same way. And this is not everything, but if one looked at the top 20 songs or the top 20 albums, whether they be singles or albums, they have a, most of them have a sameness to them that I find disappointing. Mm -hmm. What you will hear on the Hendrix record is this amazing performance from one of the world's greatest guitar players, if not the greatest guitar players, and a bunch of musicians, whether it was Mitch and Noel from the old band, or whether it was Billy Cox and Buddy Miles, 
whether he's a guest on somebody's record like or somebody's tracks like Stephen Stills, it's an incredible performance. It's live. It has a feeling to it that is undeniable. And it's a creation of f three or four guys in a room looking at each other, staring at each other, going, <laughs> certainly wasn't in the case with, with, with Noel and Jimmy, because that is actually the, this track I'm thinking of is the last recorded performance of the Jimi Hendrix experience. And it's, yeah, there's a lot of angst you could hear in the track. And I think that's what, miss I mean, there are many artists today who do love analog and do love this idea of music should be performed live in a room where the guys are looking at each other. I hate you. Yeah, but look, I'm going to play the song. And you hear that. I mean, you, you think that John and Paul didn't yell at each other. God damn, they had fistfights. And you think Mick and Keith didn't argue? For God's sake, they've been arguing for yoinks. <laughs> you know? No and doubt. And out of that comes great music. That tension. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. And also the way it's recorded. I mean, if you just go in a bloody bedroom and just stick a bass drum down and, and then all, uh, yeah, all right, you can pile it all up yourself if you're a very good musician. But where's the joy in a bunch of guys or girls or whoever, elephants? I don't care. Put them all in a room. Let's see what happens. I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know, music is an organic thing. It's, it's, I think we've relied too much on computers. Now, it sounds like I'm an old fart, but I'm not. I'm very much in the digital world. I'm very much into young artists. I'm working with a whole bunch of artists here in Toronto. Got artists in California who I work with. This young kid I'm working with um, named Ray Gorin, who's 17 years old. I've been working with him since he was 12. And he is a great artist, fantastic guitar player, and so emotional about his playing and stuff and that's the real deal that's what i look for is the real deal i have the the zeppelin box set that you were a part of to go back and listen to those songs with a critical ear and a recording engineer's ear producer's ear mixer's ear it's pretty amazing you did not get in the way you basically documented something that was a, a miraculous band in, in speaking of Zeppelin in particular, but... My favorite rock band. Yeah. Love those guys. I, I had so much fun working with them. And Paige, of course, being the taskmaster that he is, had this very clear vision. You know, there is a similarity between the two... Jim I look at them as the two Jimmies, Paige and, and, and Hendrix. Visionaries, mm -hmm. absolutely dedicated to the art of music and recording and had a clear shot. You know, when Jimmy walked in the studio and started to play a, a lick or a chord or something, or he was roughing something out, he knew from the moment he started playing it what the end result would be. And I like to feel I was on the same path in terms of creating the sound that will eventually be there. I hear that in my head. When I first hear a song for the first time, I know what I want it to sound like. Hmm. And I put that imprint right up here. Somehow it's instinctual. And I could see Jimmy, he was amazing how in absolutely within a nanosecond he could project the end of that song, where it's going to go. And Paige is the same way. You know, he has this vision of what the song will sound like in the final analysis. So that, for me, that was a joy. Very exciting, very challenging, and very demanding to get all the parts right, you know? And, and he would rehearse with, with John Bonham because some of those drum fills and some of the time sequences are wacky, you know, with the time turns around and stuff. Whoa, okay, yeah. 
I like that. And then, you know, once Bonham got the part, it would be locked in his brain. I mean, the guy was just, Bonham was just stupendous. I, I'm ranting and raving here. And I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm, I mean, how often do I get to talk to somebody who's actually worked with John Bonham, you know, who's one of my drumming heroes, so. Oh, you were a drummer, were you? I, I, well. I know, I know. I have to wind you, you up. You know how it is. Once a drummer, always a drummer. Fucking drummers, I shit him. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you know where the Trogs are from? I don't. They are from the part of England where all the pirates came from. And you know, if you look at, if you ever watch that movie with Long John, so, our lad, our gym lad. That's how they used to talk. And they used to, you know, there was this guy on, on BBC radio who said, the answer lies in the soil. And you could just hear the sort of Southern, they're from Cornwall and Devon. That's where all the pirates used to sail from. And uh, there's that sort of earthy air, lad. You can't do that, lad. I have a cassette of the Trogs tape that you're talking about. And you can actually hear that accent. Listen. Well, you said something earlier that I wanted to ask you, just to clarify, is that, you said that's your boss on the tape? No, no. My boss, Keith Grant, was running the tape machine. <laughs> he was recording that. Okay. So the Trog session, as you all, if you don't have it, you should listen to it. Probably one of the funniest tapes in rock and roll history. In fact, I, I do believe that um, there was a movie <laughs> uh, that was based on this tape. I think I know it. what movie we're talking about. Yes, and it's called... I'm going to say it's Spinal Tap. You got it! The answer. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. But uh, what's going... <laughs> What's going on is the band comes into the studio and their producer doesn't show up. So they're on their own and there's five producers and it's total chaos. So Keith, who also had a fantastic sense of humor, Keith Grant, my boss, he was running a two track in the background and that's why you, he captured all of that because he was always running tape in the background. Okay. That's how that was captured. I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes for, for yeah, this particular should. show. But that, that one definitely, part where... You're yeah. doing it fucking wrong. Cross your hands, Reg. Dubba, 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 chuck. No, you pranny. And that's where you really get to hear, when they start cursing, you hear that Southern English accent. That cracks me up every time I hear that shit. Let me ask you some business questions. Which decade do you think was the most difficult to survive as a recording professional? Probably the 90s, I think. Well, I'm, I'm guessing here. For you, I mean, when I look at the, you know, the history, you know, sixties, of course, being the junior kid learning the craft, coming to America was the big kick up. Wrecker Plant, sixty eight, then Electric Lady, sixty nine, seventy, building the studio. That's when things were really ramping up financially, mm -hmm. and then the early seventies. Wow, that's when things. When I started my production company in seventy one, and I started producing records, of course that kicked it off for me. I would say the the high uh, points in the recording industry, and certainly for me, was the 70s, late 70s going into the early 80s. Royalties were amazing. And uh, if you were careful and you saved some money, uh, you did okay. But then I think as the 80s sort of waned <laughs> with the <laughs> hair bands, it was increasingly difficult and thing into the early 90s. And that was the big change because music was really shifting. You got that, you know, the tail end of the 80s with the, with the hair bands and all that. That's all going away. And now you had grunge. And 
even though I did bands like Anthrax and stuff like that, and I did some pretty hardcore bands, but it wasn't consistent. Uh, and so right in the late 90s, I had to reinvent what I was doing and reestablish what was happening because they were hiring 20-year-old producers who didn't know much. And then I'd get the call after they'd mess it up. <laughs> Can you remix this for us, please? <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing, which was okay. But I figured out that I can do photography, which was nice. I could I established, you know, Kramer archives. Uh, I loved electronics, and I started working with uh, various pedal companies to create. The, I did the Brian May pedal mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff, and sort of branched out into the audio world in general, making uh, the connection with waves. So the plugins is wonderful. And doing lectures and sort of branching out into various parts of the business and not being restricted just to recording. Um, I love lecturing. I love going to teach at schools. I, I love teaching. I just did one at Lippa, you know, the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. Okay. Uh, um, Paul McCartney's old school. Okay. Did you know that? I you didn't know, he, know that. That was a school that he and George went to. And uh, about 20 years ago, it was in terrible shape, this place. And... I think Paul and a bunch of very smart folks in England uh, bought the building and started this university, and it's fantastic. The, hmm. it's, it is probably one of the great performing arts schools in the world, I think. And I just I was just there a couple of months ago. Very, very fine. Plus, you also do mix with the masters. I do mix with the masters, yep. which I absolutely adore going to France. Uh, Victor and Maxime, yo guys, you rock. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I did Chad's Chad Blake's. Oh, we we were just there at at the AES show, and Ch Chad and I, you know, we met a few times. But this last time we hung out, and it was wonderful. Uh, he's such a sweet man. Yeah, he really is. I and I really enjoyed that experience of hanging out with him and being in the south of France at La Fabrique, and what an experience. Oh God, it's great. I mean, what's what can one say about the south of France that's not cool? I mean, come on, yeah. that's where that's where uh, Van Gogh painted. You you drive down any street and you see on one side this field of sunflowers and the bloody black crows are landing. You think you're entering into that painting for God's sake. <laughs> so I mean, I, I I like the teaching and I like doing special events. And I love building studios, which is now where I am here in Toronto. Why I'm here in Toronto is re rebuilding the famous Elma Combo. Well, I want to ask you about that, but I have, I have one other business question to ask yeah. you. And that is, how have you handled money and business over the years? Do you think you've been wise? And Well, let me set that up. Uh, in, those, in the early days, you had a manager, they took a percentage, blah, blah, blah. And they got you work or you got your own way. I decided after a period of time, eh, I'll do this myself. And I did okay. Uh, and I learned along the way how to negotiate a deal. And then I stopped doing it. I let my lawyer do that because you don't want the uh, angst of talking to an artist about money. That's not a good thing. No. <laughs> you, know, you let your lawyer or your manager do that. But Fortunately, uh, AJ, my wife, she and I, we do the business together and she does a lot of the negotiations and, you know, we have a good attorney and that's how we work it. And we have okay. all of our businesses together. You asked about business. AJ yeah. and I have, you know, the, the scarf business, you know, we have the Kramer archives. So a bit of diversification. In my lecture, there's a thing that says diversify or die. <laughs> right. Which is 
you know, it may be a bit harsh, but in this day and age, you have to be diversified. If I were to say that's all I was going to do is mix, yeah, I'd do okay. But the challenge of building a brand new facility with John Storick, my old buddy from yeah. Walter Storick Design Group, come on, here we are. This is exciting. This At is the, another page in my life. If Clifton told me correctly, you're building a studio within the Elmo combo. Is that accurate? Well, the story is that Cliffy, as I call him, <laughs> uh, Cliffy and I go back about six, seven years. I produced a couple of albums with him. He was in California. We did a bunch of, bunch of work together for the George Martin's Soundalike Company. And we, we became good friends. And... I was in Toronto with AJ, my wife. We did a, an event at the Soho House, uh, this private club, and it was sponsored by John Valvedos, and it was called uh, Classic Album Sundays. And this, a very dear friend of ours, Colleen Murphy, who does that, they bring in the Klipsch big speakers and the turntables and the Mac amps and everything, and there's about 80 people in the room, and we just go through Led Zeppelin and then analyze it and talk about it and all that kind of stuff. That was a lot of fun. But at the end of this show that I did at the Soho House here in Toronto, Michael Weckley, who is the guy who finally bought the Elmer Combo, comes in with Cliffy, and that's how I first met him. And then within a couple of months, I get this phone call from Clifton and says, hey, guess what? Michael's bought the Elmer Combo. So the story is Michael and Cliffy are good friends. Cliffy is showing Michael how to play guitar. And Michael's driving him down past the club, and Michael says, stop, I want to buy the sign, because the, the club was for sale. He says, I want to buy that El Combo sign. It's a huge neon sign with the palm trees and everything. And um, they stop, they go into the club, and they talk to the owner, and, he, and Michael says, listen, man, I, I want to buy that sign. And the guy says, nah, nah, it's not for sale. He comes back the next day, gives him a check, and buys the whole club. That's the kind of guy he is. <laughs> so here we are. Almost two years later, Cliffy says, you got to come up and see what we're trying to do here. We're, we bought, Michael bought this club, but it'd be very cool if we put a couple of recording studios in. That was the original plan. I said, all right, I'm going to do this, but I'm one condition. I've got to bring John Starrick in because that's the only way I'll do this. Brought John in. He looked at it. We looked at it together. And we started laughing because here we are 40 plus years later. And we're taking a nightclub and making it into a recording studio. Duh, that was Electric Lady. Hello. <laughs> so um, after quite a bit of back and forth, we had to settle. We were going to put two studios in. There just wasn't enough room. So we have one studio on the top floor. We've taken the entire building and destroyed the whole thing except for the facade, front and back and sides. And we've dug down eight foot below grade, popped up higher, so now the second floor is now 27 and a half foot high with a balcony running around the perimeter. And that's where my studio is. I have a Neve 88R going in there and all the analog gear, all the digital gear, all the mics, everything. And it looks down at the stage, closed circuit TV, 24 hour streaming, merchandising. The two venues sit one on top of the other. And the second floor is isolated, completely isolated from the other one. So you will never get any sound leakage between the two rooms. It's a lot of money, a lot of work, and very exciting. We have Elma Combo Productions for the, for, you know, what I'm doing now, you know, whatever we do here in the studio. That's for the local bands and international bands. That's for us doing our production. Elma Combo 
um, publishing, and then this Elma Combo events, you know, that kind of stuff. It's it's pretty cool. Wow, it's, it's a it's a huge, huge deal. <laughs> it's going to be the premier event space here in Toronto, and definitely a new destination for I'm sure many bands. Yeah, I mean, look at the history of it. What I think what Michael wanted to do was to take the brand, the history of that brand, and don't let it die. Let's rebuild it. Let's make it brand new again. And he's, I think we're, we're doing it. Well, that, yeah, that is quite an undertaking, the Elmo combo. And I guess you're living in Toronto for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I go back and forth a lot. I'm flying, you know, I've got clients in LA and New York. And uh, I was just at Electric Lady uh, with Janie Hendrix and John McDermott. We were doing a huge promotional thing for the album, which is very exciting. <laughs> I'll get I, you a copy, I promise you. I, I absolutely cannot wait. I mean, I'm, to sit here and talk to you about it and realize the historical significance of it, I'm, I'm pretty excited, I got to tell you. If you look up uh, under Associated Press, you'll find a whole bunch of stuff about the album. It just came out, uh, the press release was two days ago. I have to ask you about some oddball thing here that I saw. You are credited with playing vibraphone on Magical Mystery Tour? I've never understood where the hell they got that shit from. Jeez Louise. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I recorded Baby a Rich Man and- All You Need Is Love? Uh, All You Need Is Love, right. Somehow somebody got their wires crossed. I didn't play on that. I recorded those two, but I didn't play on it. So I've never really figured that one out. With somebody like yourself who has a deep, deep history and a lot of influence around what you've done, I'm sure people just start making shit up. Yeah, I mean, I remember playing percussion with the Rolling Stones on uh, uh, Satanic Majesties. Yes, that wow. I do remember. But as far as the no, the beat, you know, uh, if you want the story about how that all happened, yeah, you want that quick story, absolutely. So we get the phone call, uh, Eddie. The the Beatles are coming in. <gasps> Holy shit! That's like that's royalty. You know, you bow down. Thank you very much. And. Not that we didn't know about them because uh, when the Stones were recording and I was assisting, you know, John and Paul would come in and help sing background vocals. And they were very friendly. You know, the Stones and the Beatles really knew each other quite well and would always help each other. So the other part of that story is, you know, what the press does and what everybody else does to make them seem like enemies. But they're not. They're all, they're all buddies. And Brian Jones from the Stones was Jimmy's one of Jimmy's best friends. Hmm. But to get back to the Beatles, uh, <laughs> it would be so funny. You would see outside Olympic, a row of cars. It'd be Aston Martins, it'd be Bentleys, Jaguars, Rolls Royces. And this was all stuff that, you know, John Lennon's famous Rolls Royce with all the painting on it would be outside. And then the, the two double-decker buses, the red buses would go like this <laughs> and the drivers would open their window and say, oh, mate, you see all that? You say that's John Lennon's, isn't it? <laughs> It's so funny. But um, anyway, I, I keep digressing. So we get a phone call. The Beatles are coming in. We're, holy shit. Keith Grant and I do this, the first one, which is Baby a Rich Man. And we started at seven o'clock at night. We finished, I think, at about four or five or something in the morning. We tracked it, we overdubbed it, and we mixed it all in one night. No doubt. Do you know what instrument was played 
that goes that little whiny thing in the middle is that is that the keyboard yes sir it was called called an ondioline okay and a clavioline okay and we had all kinds of leans in there (laughs) (laughs) no we had a big table full of i guess french electronic instruments that were sitting on a table that were left over and that's how all these sessions were so amazing like when we did All You Need Is Love, John's sitting next to me at the producer's desk and he says, come on, lads, we have to do this song for TV then. And he starts playing, All You Need Is Love. And the band sort of starts walking out of the control room, goes down into the studio. George Martin walks over to the harpsichord. All right, I'll play this. I quickly run down, throw a mic on that. Paul walks over to the corner, picks up a string bass. Right, I'll have this. And... Quick stick in mind, and that was Keith Grant's string bass because he used to be in a jazz band. <laughs> so all the shit that was lying in the studio got used for the session. <laughs> for all you need is love. Amazing. Damn, Eddie. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. We'll do this again. I, I would like to do this again. We could do a follow-up. All right. We'll and do it all backwards. We'll just talk backwards. <laughs> we should totally do that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Turn the tape over, mate. It sounds better that way. All right, man. Great to talk to you. I'll see you at NAMM. All right, buddy. Thanks again. Thank you, Matt. Cheers. Bye-bye. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP-UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Eddie Kramer here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. What a way to cap off the year, my friends. And I want to give a special thanks, of course, to Clifton for uh, helping arrange that. And, uh, of course, want to thank Eddie for uh, taking the time to speak with us. And I want to thank you for listening, of course. And uh, that's it. We're out of time. So that's the end of the year. Let's do it. Let's thank everybody. Thank you to Mr. Cliff Truesdale and Mr. Chuck Smith. Once again, thank you to all of you. Happy New Year. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.